Good morning. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. But first, let's catch up with some of the day's top headlines. As states continued to reopen schools and local economies, the United States counted 6 million confirmed coronavirus cases on Sunday. One day after a fatal shooting in Portland, Oregon State Police officers are now backing up the city's police. Protests continued Sunday night. Details surrounding the shooting are still unclear, but the victim's name was made public on social media and President Trump tweeted his condolences. India is reporting that its army has engaged with Chinese forces in the heavily armed and contested border area along the Himalayas. This is the latest episode in the months-long conflict that has seen at least 20 Indian soldiers killed back in June. One week ago, right before the start of the Republican National Convention, President Trump announced the U.S. Food and Drug Administration was granting emergency use of convalescent plasma as a treatment for COVID-19. This is not a new technique. Doctors have used it for over a century. The idea is giving a sick person an infusion of plasma from a recovered patient can boost antibodies to fight an infection. But some scientists and public health experts were not sold on it as a treatment for the coronavirus. And the politics of this emergency authorization became a lot more complex than the science. The Washington Post has a new report out. The paper spoke to more than 30 people, including current and former administration officials. And they say the White House is putting political pressure on the FDA to rush a treatment. And we've seen what happens when politics undermine science. The Post writes about the FDA's earlier missteps, about how the administration gave emergency authorization to use hydroxychloroquine. The data ended up showing that it was not effective against the coronavirus and even potentially dangerous, which is what led the FDA to rescind its authorization for the drug. And now we have another too-soon-to-call treatment. Now, the thing is, with this plasma treatment, the FDA had been working on granting emergency authorization for it for a few weeks. The agency was just waiting on more data from the Mayo Clinic to back up its initial findings. Yeah, those delays really frustrated the White House. And it got so bad. On the Saturday before the RNC, in a tweet, President Trump accused the so-called deep state of slowing down treatments and vaccines in order to hurt his reelection. The next day, the FDA granted authorization. The administration's director, Stephen Hahn, tried to back up the president. The problem is he cited false statistics to support Trump's claim that convalescent plasma was, quote, a very historic breakthrough. Well, Hahn later had to take back his claim. He then apologized and said he'd made a mistake. According to this report, FDA employees feel like Hahn let the agency become part of the president's campaign for re-election. And they worry that when it comes time to approve a coronavirus vaccine, even if the vaccine is scientifically sound, the public might think twice about a stamp of approval from the FDA. Chadwick Boseman, the actor who brought Black Panther to life on the big screen, died of colon cancer on Friday. He was 43 years old and never publicly shared that he was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer back in 2016. It eventually progressed to stage four. On Friday night, Google searches for the phrase colon cancer spiked. People must have been asking themselves, am I at risk? What do I need to know about colon cancer? 
Well, colorectal cancers, which include cancers in the colon and rectum, are the fourth most commonly diagnosed form of cancer and third leading case of cancer-related deaths in the United States. The Wall Street Journal is out with a Q&A about colorectal cancer, and it notes, overall, cases and deaths have been declining for decades. But according to the National Cancer Institute, between 1994 and 2014, new cases for people younger than 55 increased by 51%. And by the end of the decade, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute says the number of colon cancer cases within this younger group will double. For rectal cancers alone, it's predicted that that number will quadruple. The journal says scientists aren't exactly sure why these numbers are on the rise for younger people. And the thing is, colon cancer is largely treatable if it's caught early enough. 90% of patients who get an early diagnosis are likely to recover. But screening for this type of cancer is usually recommended for older age groups. So for a person who's in their 30s, otherwise healthy, and possibly experiencing symptoms related to colon cancer, those early symptoms might seem like other non-cancerous gastrointestinal issues. Yeah, but even if you suspect you have an issue and are within the early detection window, access to that type of preventative care is sometimes hard, Shamita. And on top of that, some people had to delay recommended screenings because of the pandemic. As Time Magazine reports, many hospitals were trying to free up resources to treat COVID-19 patients and avoid inadvertently spreading the virus. So a lot of patients had to delay the types of preventative treatment that could help diagnose early-stage cancers. Now, Time points to studies suggesting an 80% drop in routine screening appointments between the months of March and April. That's hundreds of thousands of exams missed around the country. And some estimates say pandemic-related delays in cancer screenings and care could lead to around 10,000 additional deaths over the next decade. The chief medical officer at The Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center tells Time, Most cancers are slow-growing enough that missing a screening or delaying it by a few months won't make a huge difference, but you shouldn't let those months turn into years. Most doctors want you to schedule your appointments now. Both the NBA and WNBA are back on after play came to a dramatic halt last week when some players refused to take the court. They did it to protest the shooting of Jacob Blake by a police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. By Friday, both leagues and their players came to an agreement to resume play. What they also did was launch a few initiatives to promote issues like social justice and police reform. And voting access, according Mm -hmm. to ESPN, The NBA and the Players Union announced they're converting arenas into polling places for November's election. That's every arena that the NBA teams own and operate. Now, they want these facilities to be a safe place for in-person voting. The men's league is also committing to working with the players and its broadcast partners to come up with advertising during playoff games to promote civic engagement and to raise general awareness about voting access. In an article for Slate... Maitreyi Anantharaman says, while the NBA strikes got a lot of attention, it's actually the WNBA that's been way out in front of social justice issues. And for years now, she calls the women of the WNBA the, quote, moral center of basketball. Anantharaman points to an example from four years ago when players on the Indiana Fever, New York Liberty and Phoenix Mercury wore unapproved shirts during warm up to protest the deaths of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. 
the league was not as receptive to the players' advocacy as it has been recently. Now, one of the league's star players, Maya Moore, sat out her second consecutive season this year and took herself out of the running for the Olympics to fight for justice. She was trying to bring awareness to the case of Jonathan Irons. Now, this man was wrongfully convicted in 1998 of burglary and assault. You know, she helped him pay for his lawyers and met with Irons and his defense team. She also attended hearings, and all her work apparently paid off. This July, he was freed. Yeah, as Anantharaman reminds us in this Slate piece, the NBA's subsidization of the WNBA has long been understood as a kind of unspoken threat held over the athletes. And this dynamic puts WNBA players in a much more vulnerable position than their male counterparts when it comes to standing up to their league. They don't have the same kind of financial leverage that the male players have. Yeah, but on the flip side, WNBA players earned enormous goodwill because of their activism, and not just for their league, but the NBA too. And now that the NBA is taking center stage because players refused to play last week, Anantha Raman writes, It's important to recognize the WNBA players who've been doing the bulk of this social justice work for years. You can find links to all these stories in today's show notes page. And if you're enjoying the show, you know what you can do? You can leave us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the show. We'll talk with you again tomorrow.